This is the only church in the history of the church that does that. It will be. It will be in heaven and Jesus will be like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Uh, A theme today is mirrors. Uh, I tend to avoid them now. There was a day when I looked in them a little more. Uh, and But they are uh, prevalent, obviously. The mirror shows you, let's see, not good. <laughs> and it reveals to you, obviously, what you look like. It's a reflection. Uh, it needs light. Uh, and it is uh, two-dimensional. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, depending on... Who, what state of mind you're in? Excuse me. <coughs> yeah, this is going to go over well. That um, you know, either maybe you like looking at them. Uh, as I said, I don't anymore. I avoid them as uh, very much. But um, there are actually great stories of mirrors in uh, in literature. Uh, one of them. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm still getting over my cold, so I apologize. Of course, this has to happen now. Uh, is this mirror in um, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series? And yes, I, I'm actually, I've been through two of the books. It doesn't mean I'm becoming a wizard. I know some, isn't that funny how some Christian circles are like, don't, you can't read those books. They don't teach you how to be a wizard. Um, but anyway, in the Harry Potter series, there's this mirror that's called the Mirror of Erised. And in it, it doesn't show you you. It shows you your deepest and most desperate desire of your heart. In, in this picture, in the movie here, well, actually, this is an artist rendition. Uh, Harry Potter, whose parents died, he sees his parents, he sees himself with his parents in this mirror. And when he sees this, he, he doesn't want to look away because this is what he desires the most is to be with his parents. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, therefore, it's a neat, uh, Rowling did a neat job here because said is desire spelled backward. So if you, look, if you look into the mirror, things are backwards. And the happiest, most satisfied person in the world would look into this mirror and see themselves just as they are. But none of us are really like that. Uh, It is intrinsically inherent in human nature to desire something greater than oneself. And if you look into this mirror, you would see that. According to Dumbledore, if you know the series, you know who that is. He's the Grand Wizard. Not like KKK. (coughs) But according to him, men could waste away staring at it. Staring at their desires fulfilled in this mirror and just can't look away. Don't want to look away. It would drive you crazy. And it's not real. A desire unfulfilled isn't real. The writing engraved on the mirror, I'm not going to read, it's all backwards, but it's, it's uh, 
Well, I'll read it. I'll try. Erised stra ehru oit ub kafru oit on wosi. And that's all backwards. So if you read that backwards, it's I show not your face, but your heart's desire. If someone today looked into a real mirror and couldn't look away, like I, I don't even want to look at me, but if you if you had one of these and you just couldn't help but look at it and admire yourself, what are you? Who's the guy? You know the guy. Right? You're narcissistic. This is another mirror. This actually, in, in the same way <coughs> that the other mirror shows desire and the person can't look away. Narcissus sees himself and he can't look away. Because he's beautiful. Known for his beauty, he fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water, and he couldn't leave. He couldn't look away. And he died there. And when he died, a flower grew. A Narcissus flower. If you have them in your garden, shame on you. (laughs) Another great mirror, Snow White. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And when she doesn't hear what she likes, she premeditates murder. But, at least in that mirror, it tells her the truth. The mirror can't lie. So, why why all the mirrors? Well, we're starting the book of James today. And one of the great images that James uses, Paul uses it too, is a mirror. And God has given us a mirror. Thank God it's not this one. He didn't give us this one. Actually, when the Bible was written, these didn't exist. So, that's why Jesus Jesus didn't know what he looked like. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know what that even means. There's no paintings of him. Actually, there is a painting. I'm going to show you that coming up too. But anyway, God has given us a mirror. Every one of us. And he wants us to look into it. And he wants us to truly see what it reveals. It reveals us. When you look into this mirror, it reveals you. But not as this would show you. But as God sees you. We behold an image of us. And we also behold an image of another. We're not alone in this mirror. There's another. Another person standing next to us. And if we look closely at the one standing next to us, we will see some similarities that are just wonderful. But we'll also see some differences that are not so wonderful. And those differences are on us, not him. But somehow we know that the differences that we have are not forever. Because the mirror tells us this. The mirror tells us that we're going to be transformed. The mirror tells us that when we are transformed, that we're going to look just like Him. But until that time, the mirror shows us how different we are in places. The mirror also tells us that the similarities that we have with this other one are eternal and they're wonderful. They're never going to change. So when you look into this mirror and you say, wow, I really like that part of me. That's my good side, you know. 
That's never going to change. When you look at the parts that are not so good, the mirror tells you how to change them. And the mirror tells you they're not permanent. The mirror tells you that the one in the mirror with you loves you like you can't imagine. And he's never going to leave you. And he is going to give you the power and actually pray that the things that need to change will change. Paul calls this mirror the glory of the Lord. James calls this mirror, actually he refers to it as a regular mirror, uh, but he's using it as an analogy. What James tells us is that when you look into this mirror, which is the Word of God, when you leave it, when you close the book, and turn away from the mirror, don't forget what you saw. If you forget what you saw, then you'll just go about your life as if you have one of these instead of the real one, the Word of God. And that's what James brings to us. And that's what his book is all about, actually. This, This one theme, which we're fortunate with James, that actually we can look at a single theme. That's not true of all the books. But with James, there is a single theme, and that theme is to see who you are and to not forget it. To see who you are and to live what you are. And that's what James is all about. We'll look at that today. (coughs) So let's open up in prayer. As uh, James also instructs us that before we hear God's word, we should have no wickedness or anything like that in our hearts. So if there's anything like that, throw it out. And receive the Word of God implanted that is able to deliver us. Uh, And what we'll do is we always do, is we're going to look into the mirror of the Word of God. And if we look into it humbly with reverence and respect and really see how important it is, then we'll see a greater reflection. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has uh, provided for us, qualified us to be your sons and daughters. He (coughs) has earned us for you and he calls us his first fruits. Uh, your servant James writes of us as the first fruits. The first fruits are the crop, what the crop, the whole rest of the crop is supposed to look like. And you, Father, have vision and insight to see what we are and what we should be. For all of us, there's things that are still cloudy. For some of us, we know more of that image than than others. But we... Seek, Father, through the mirror of your word to see the image that you have made. To see ourselves in your eyes so that we may be so convinced of who we are as the first fruits of glory that we will follow through with faith and obedience to live the way that you have made us. 
and therefore, as you promised, to be incredibly blessed. So we seek your blessing, Father, through your insight, your love. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though we are sinners, has completely paid for our sins. We ask, Father, for your guidance and uh, help each of us to really, truly worship you this morning and together to worship you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All rise, please.
Uh, turn your Bibles to, we're going to start in 2 Corinthians, and we'll quickly head over to James. So uh, the format of this seems to be, we're going to do every book in the New Testament. <laughs> it should take us a bit, but uh, we're not going to do it verse by verse, because then, then that's, you know, I'll be, de- I'll be dead before that's done. Uh, so we're going to look at main themes and some sub-themes. We won't be able to touch on everything in the book. Uh, so, the plan is right now, when God always changes my plans, and yours, that uh, <clears throat> we'll introduce on Sundays, we'll introduce the book, look at main theme. Hopefully there's one. In some books there are more than one. And, and then during the week, kind of break down those themes, theme or themes or sub-themes, if you will, and look at them in a little more detail. And if it takes us a little longer than a week to look at, because we want to make sure we get everything that is important, um, then fine. For some books, it'll be easy to complete them in a week. For others, it might be two. You know, like take something like the Book of Romans is going to be, it's enormous and there's so much in it. Uh, but we're going <clears> to <throat> avoid a lot and look at, main themes. So what we want to do here is, you know, who's writing the book and why, to who, and why is he writing it? Now, there's no, none of the authors are like, you know, we better, somebody better start a Bible. And James is the first book. That's why we're starting with James. It's the first one written. And it's not like James is like, dude, we need a, we need a book. Uh, a new book, you know, because we're not under the law anymore. <laughs> but that's not the case. There's James is writing to a certain people for a certain reason. And if we miss that, we miss what he's saying. And we, we tend to do this. We tend to think that, you know, people in the first century are all walking around with one of these. You know, like Titus. Go to Corinth. They're in trouble. All right, hold on, Paul. Let me get my Bible. There's no such thing. The the Old Testament they have, of course. And so actually, in the first few decades, the Old Testament was the text. But the Old Testament to them was opened up by the Lord Jesus Christ. And over time, theology, what we call theology, is developed and in the book of James, there's none. There's really no theology. There's no Christology. Christology is a fancy way of saying, well, who is the Lord and what did he do? And it's not in the book of James. The author is the Lord's half-brother. Uh, you'd think he'd talk more about his brother, but he doesn't. And they're, they're, one of the reasons is, is how early this book is written. But again, the most important reason 
is why James is writing this. And when we know that, then the passages in them, and I'm sure you know there's some scary passages in here, uh, they get cleared up really quick and actually become easy to understand. But we've got to look at the book as a whole, which isn't too hard for this one because it's five chapters. It's not that long. So as I said, there is little that we would call theology in this letter. Christ is only mentioned twice. He's mentioned in the first line, uh, I'm James, a bondservant of Christ. You've got to love how James doesn't say, I'm the brother of Christ, so read my letter. No, he says, I'm a bondservant of Christ. He's a humble man. And uh, <clears throat> in chapter 2, verse 1, James calls him, the Lord of glory. This is a title that also Paul uses for the Lord. So if there's no theology in the letter, you can see the trouble that can arise when people try to develop theologies from the book of James. If you know anything about the book, you know the famous line, faith without works is dead. So, let's make a gospel out of that. Oh, slow down. Let's make a soteriology out of that. That's the doctrines of salvation. Faith without works is dead, dude. If you don't have works, you're not saved. Is that what James is saying? James is actually not talking to unbelievers. First off, he's not writing to unbelievers. That's very clear. And he is not at all interested in the salvation or the method of salvation of the people he's writing to. Because he's writing to people who are already saved. What, Paul, what James is concerned about is how their faith is manifesting itself in their lives. This book is about behavior of Christians. And as that, it's very authoritative. Uh, there's, there's 104 verses, and there's 52 imperatives. I don't know why I'm holding my hand up as if there's, I should, write, should have written. If I thought ahead, I would have wrote 52 on it. There's 52 imperatives. You know what imperatives are? They're commands. Half of the book is in command mode. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. You're like, whoa, James, slow down. And actually, well, we'll see this. Martin Luther couldn't stand this book. And because of that, because of great influence, and, and I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of Martin, great German theologian. Uh, but, you know, there's some things he wrote that were I'm not a fan of, but most of the stuff. He, he's a great, great man of God. But he didn't like the book of James. And because of that, it's kind of been uh, taken a second seat, almost like, you know, should it be in the Bible? It really should be. So, is faith without works dead in the context of the book? Absolutely. James writes this clearly. What we can't do is say, wait a minute, maybe James meant something else, and then add that to the book. We can't do that, because if we do that, we're already, off, we're already off balance. And then when we try to take other things out of the book, we've already put into it something that has 
altered it or stained it, if you will. We mustn't stain it. We mustn't eisegete. Eisegete means put into the Word of God. We must only exegete. Exegete means take out of the Word of God. So, if the, if the book doesn't contain any theology, what does it contain? The theme of James is the proper response to faith when it's tested. You like my picture? I especially like the Hulk. Uh, I mean, in general, I like the Hulk. But what is your response to trial? And this is right at the front. Chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that these trials produce in you endurance. It's really the first thing that James mentions in this text is you should be joyful. Joyful in what? In trials. But So why particularly trials? What we all know as I answer the question for you that I just asked, we all know that trials, pressure, exacerbate everything. Now, if you're virtuous, trials exacerbate your virtue. You come through. You shine. Right? This is the refined gold that God talks about. The pressure increases your faith. And that's actually what James points out right in the beginning. That he says to the, these people that, look, we should understand that these trials are good for us and therefore we should rejoice in them because if we don't go through them and handle them properly, then our faith is not going to grow. Our strength, our faith, our trust, our virtue, it's not going to get any better. So, that's from the Word of God. So, I look into the mirror. You know, I'm using this all day. I look into the mirror of this Word of God, and I say, yeah, James, thanks for that. And then forget it. I go about my day. The phone rings. Bad news. It, you know, something happened. Somebody just cut me off. I'm on my way home from church. Uh, yeah, whatever, something happens. My, wa- my wife, my husband, they said the wrong thing. We started, you know, started to get into a fight. Whatever. And James just told me, these trials are good for me. But I was looking into the mirror in church. Sorry, James. Sorry, Lord. I do remember looking into your mirror, but now at home, I'm not. What am I looking into? Myself the world, my flesh. I'm not looking at it at all, actually. And what have I done? This is James' theme. I have forgotten. So fortunately, that's why we have a church. You get to come back and look into the mirror again. And unlike the Harry Potter mirror, this mirror is not going to show you what you want. It's going to show you what God wants. And actually, what God wants, is already wanted, He is fulfilled. He desires all men to be saved and come to a full knowledge of the truth, and He has done that for you. 
when you look into the Word of God, these are the passages that we love to long to look into. You're forgiven. You're saved. Right? You have eternal life. You're indwelt by God. God loves you, adores you, forgives you, is kind to you, is for you. All things will work together for good for you. Right? We see that. But we also see, and it shouldn't really be a but, it should be and we also see, the virtues, ethics, if you will, morals, the law of liberty. That's what James terms it, the law of liberty. The law of freedom. And that law has a certain way to it. There's a life. There's a way. And that way has to be obeyed. And so as James writes, the Word of God must be implanted. And implanted, this word infers, being obeyed. Planted and lived. So, this, this theme we can't forget. We can't forget what we've seen. And when we do, and we do, we come back to the mirror and we look again and again and again. And eventually, we stop forgetting. If we start really loving what we see in the mirror of the Word of God, which is the glory of God, if we start loving what we see, we will want it more than anything, and we won't want to forget it. And we'll start to see that even the little things in our lives, like our relationships with our spouses, our children, our neighbor, <coughs> their dog went and messed on my front yard. How I, I don't know why I thought of that, but whatever. How I respond to that, is just as important as the greatest spiritual thing I could do. And you start to realize that it's in everything that I must be what God has made me to be. And then you'll start to look at people differently. There's people in your life that are in need. You know how I know that? Because your souls, you guys here, I know you, your souls are filled with truth. And God sends those to need to be rescued by the truth to you and to me. And if when I if I you know I know that when I'm in Bible class, but then I head out into the world and it's all about me. My mirror becomes this. I'm just looking at me. So it, uh, in uh, Peter, Second Peter chapter one, he talks about the qualities of virtue. And he said, if they're not increasing in you, these qualities, he said, you're short-sighted. And short-sighted means you can only see that far. It's a close-up of you. I won't look at this mirror as a close-up. Especially down here, you see my four chins. When I, every time I take photos, they're up here. So if you have a double chin, it works. You look, in pictures, you look 10 pounds thinner. I'm helping you out in many ways here. So how do we respond when faith is tested? Depression, anger, rage, blaming, pity. James says, come on, baby, be happy. Right? I knew you'd love that, especially you grandparents. I, I, uh, this, the kid looks like he's thinking, so I thought that was great. And he's happy. 
So James deals with the behavior of Christians in trials, and he brings out the key areas in a believer's life where this behavior must manifest itself in a certain way. It must manifest itself. So that's why faith without works is dead. Because if I have faith, but I don't do anything, what is my life? Things that, you know, does he mean physical death? In some cases, physical death does result, early, premature physical death, from bad decisions. And for Christians. I mean, the obvious example is like an overdose or something like that, but uh, we can destroy our bodies and our minds by sin. Stress is a killer. And we can die young. What, you know, we, nobody knows that. Only God knows. But uh, <clears throat> the manifestation of faith, if it's not there... I have gobs of doctrine swimming around in my head like a school of fish. I don't do anything. I believe much. I do nothing. What are you? James would say you're dead. And what he means by dead is not physically dead. What he means is sterile. Uh, unfruitful. You know, it's like a tree that doesn't produce. As Jesus said, Jesus uses the same language. If the vine, if the branch doesn't abide in the vine, what the, it, it's fit to be thrown out. That's not loss of salvation. That just means you're not producing any fruit. You've got to abide in him. And abide means to hear, to obey, and to do. The, 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 what we see in our Bibles is a faith. And that faith commands us to be of a certain type which we are. God has made us of this type to walk by the Spirit. He's made us for this. And, uh, and to do what He tells us to do. So, say, I, I, I refuse to forgive certain people of the sins they have committed against me. Are you in the, quote-unquote, in the faith? Right? You say, well, well I, I'm in the faith in other areas. I just, I hate that guy. I'm not going to forgive him. But I love this part of the faith and that part of the faith. And James, just like Paul would say, you violate the law, you're guilty of it all. And you say, ho, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not under the Mosaic law. True, that's true. But you are under a law. And the, the truth still stands. When it comes to God's law, Old Testament or New, if I violate one part of it, I am a guilty sinner. I have violated the whole thing. So that's God's way of telling us, though none of us will become sinless. Technically, all of us are violators of the law. If it weren't for the blood of Christ, then none of us would fulfill it. But it's God's way of telling us that you can't pick and choose what you want to do well, and what you will allow yourself to do not well. You don't get to do that. Who do you think you are? Me? You can't do that. And James, in this letter, brings that up beautifully. Beautifully. <clears throat> so the, the key to James's letter 
is response to faith, manifestation of faith in believers, not unbelievers. And when we understand this, when he says, you know, faith cannot save, we say, wait a minute, I hate the book of James. (laughs) That, That is the very line. You know, what was Martin Luther's mantra? Sola fide, faith alone. He even added it. He added the word alone to Romans 3.28 where it says faith without the law or justification without the law. He put justification... uh, How does he put it? Anyway, I went on a, a Lutheran website to see how they deal with that. And they were like, oh yeah, that's fine. He had every right to put that word alone in there in his German Bible. His German translation of 1555 or whatever it was. He has no right to put it in there. Is it implied that it's by faith alone? Of course. It's just not in the language. There is a Greek word for alone. And it's not in that verse. Uh, So, look at 2 Corinthians 3.17. The language of the mirror. Now, the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. See this word liberty? This is also a word that James uses multiple times. Except he links it to the law. The law of liberty. But we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What a verse. And note who he's writing it to. I always love when these beautiful verses are found in Corinthians because they, were, they, they weren't doing all that well. But still, it is true. We all with an unveiled face. Why is it unveiled? He, re, he explains that in the previous sentence. It's because Christ tore the veil. Through his cross, the veil is no more. If you're a believer in Christ, then now you look into the Holy of Holies. This mirror, which is the Word of God, is the glory of the Lord. And it's not just you it's, I mean, it's not just His glory that you see. You see your own. You see because this glory is also ours. Why is this glory ours? It's the word image. One of my favorite passages in Colossians is, I think it's, no, is it 3.10? I think it's 3.10, where we're new creatures created in the image of Christ. Not that we will be in the image of Christ. We are new, the new creation. Old crucified, new resurrected. The new creation created in the image of Christ. And that, you know, when you're looking into one of these mirrors, is that what you see? The image of Christ? I hope you didn't look like this. But when you look into this mirror, that's exactly what you see. This one you can forget <laughs> when you walk away. So you're like, you know, I am handsome. No, no, look again. <laughs> That's why I don't, I don't look at him anymore. But um, in the Word of God, you see the same image again and again. And if, say, you had the most horrible, sinful day yesterday, and then you looked into the image again today, would you look any different? Nope. Would he? Nope. All right, James 1, before I tear up. 
So we behold in the mirror of the Word of God, we behold something or really someone. The glory of the Lord is a term that James also uses in chapter 2, verse 1. We behold this glory. James points out that this glory is from heaven. This is a glory that cannot be manufactured anywhere on earth. This glory is heavenly. And it's the only, it's not only one person we see, we see uh, ourselves. So when we see this, it's like a dream, is it not? But that's the mirror from uh, Harry Potter. Shows you your dreams. This is a reality. Those who reject Christ see all of this as nonsense, as a dream. And how funny enough and how ironically they sit around dreaming of what they can be in, in earthly terms. I might be rich, I might be famous, I might be handsomer or prettier, I might get the girl, I might get the guy, I might go on vacation, I might get the job, I might get the promotion. I dream and dream and dream of all things that are going to be destroyed that have no lasting value. And compared to the glory of heaven, even God says this so marvelously, the prophets, the New Testament, all say it. Compared to the glory of God, what are the finest gold and rubies and diamonds on earth? What are are they compared to Him? James brings this out too. Because what he saw here in the early church is that there was a preference for the rich Christians over the poor. And sure, in walks, the differences then would be a lot more obvious than they are now. If you walk into the church in 40 AD, any church, well, it's really a home, and you're poor, oh, you look it. You smell it, actually. One of the main things that you could tell a rich person was is that they didn't smell like They they washed, they bathed, they had water. The poor, they didn't have any of that. The poor stunk, they were dirty, they had dirty old clothes, you could tell. And lo and behold, the whole world, and it still is like this, that those who are not poor, you know, the rich, especially the the uber wealthy, are, are so admired and looked up to and thought to be, wow, I wish I could be like them. And then God says that I have raised the poor to the heights of heaven. I have glorified all who have believed upon me. The poor are now rich in Christ. And uh, and so it's, it's another aspect of what is the expression of our faith when we look at people. Do I show deference to this person and can't, don't look at, don't even be a part of that person because they are a certain way or they talk a certain way or maybe they are poor or they're homeless? Do I turn away? James gets into all of this. So, James one twenty three. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. 
For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. What kind of per? What kind? You know, he doesn't say he doesn't forget what he looked like. It's what kind. And here, of course, he's bridging the gap between actual physical appearance and what type of people we are, which is far more important. What are we in our souls? What type of people are we? So, James is going to say, in light of this verse, and you want to hold on to this one, right? This is, a, a, this is one that helps us see the theme of the whole book. Because then you progress, you read this, and you're like, okay, that makes sense. Right? It, it's pretty obvious. If you, if you have faith and you don't do anything, then you know, what, what use are you in the kingdom of God? You, serve, you don't serve anybody, you don't pray, you don't, you don't do anything. Uh, so, then, you keep reading and you head into chapter 2. And then James says, can faith save you? And his concrete answer is, no. And again, there's no use trying to water this down. He says, no. Can faith save you? Absolutely not. Concrete. But then we have to say, wait a minute. Now, so when we answer this concretely and don't say, well, you know, maybe James is talking about a kind of faith. You know, and this, the Lordship Salvation people kind of do this, and you'll you'll see it here. The New American Standard does a does a disservice to us, as most translations do. They put in the word that can that faith save them or save him. And that seems to imply that there's a kind of faith that can save and there's a kind of faith that doesn't. And so they'll say, well, yeah, you believed in Christ, but you didn't believe hard enough. You didn't believe deep enough. You see, there's a kind of faith. Or as a colleague of mine ran into, and it still is, sadly to me, that you didn't have a, your faith comes from your heart, not your mind. I asked him once, can you explain to me the difference? Tell me in real life how faith in your mind is different from faith in your heart. So he, you know, he says, well, you really believe it. So what is that? So faith in your mind is like, I'm just saying I believe it, but I really don't. And that's, that's just called self-deception. That's not faith. Faith is faith. Can faith save him? No. So, it's not. It, therefore, it's saved from what? Does the Bible always speak of the word "save"? So, sozo or soze? Does it mean always salvation from the lake of fire? And it does not. So, go to James two fourteen, where this is. And it's 14 through 26. That's the big conundrum. That is, and when we're and we're going to spend a class on this section, this these verses, and you'll see there's no problem here at all, and they're actually quite wonderful. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith? Save him. 
All right, you ready? Because now you, you got me taking Greek classes. You're going to see some Greek now. So there's the sentence. Can. Give you that. Come on. Can. Dunatai. We get the word dynamite from this word. Dunamis. That means be able, powerful. And then you have hey pistis. And you see that little hey that I have the first arrow going to? They say, well, that, there's your that. That faith. But that's a definite article. These are the first, you learn these like the first week of Greek are the definite articles. And that, the word the. So if you were going to translate the definite article, it would be can the faith save him. But in Greek, Greek uses definite articles differently than English does. Greek doesn't have an indefinite article. Indefinite article is the word a. So we would translate this can a faith save him? It sounds clunky and it doesn't fit the context. But we wouldn't do that anyway because the definite article is there. The Greeks don't even have an indefinite article. They just leave it out. And so, like in my Greek book, the definite article chapter, where it explains how it all works in Greek, it's like that thick. <laughs> and it's one of the most important things you can know about the Greek language. It's different than English. That's just the way it is. They're different languages. We actually don't translate the definite article here. Because you, you have a, 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 a word, a noun, that is not, it's not concrete. It's not like the car or the desk or the room. This faith. Faith is faith. And then next, save, so say, and then auton, pronoun, him. So what do you see here? Can faith save him? Not can. There is no that in front of faith. It's just not there. So that just it's something to point out because can faith save him? That's it. That's what James writes. And the clear answer to his sentence is no, it cannot. And when we answer this honestly, we can admit without doubt that James must be discussing something else than salvation by grace. Because he actually, in the letter, he's writing to those who are saved. He makes this clear. So, <clears throat> what does James mean by save? Or better yet, we could say, what does he mean by saved from what? Does he mean eternal hell or something else? And we find the appropriate answer right in his letter. Faith alone will not save us from death. And that's what he means. We'll see this. We'll go back to chapter 1 and see this. Uh, <clears throat> faith alone without works is not going to give you a life that is royal. Now, why do I say royal? Because James calls it the crown of life. That's what he says. He says we're going to be given the crown of life. In the context of James, when, when you hear the crown of life, you probably are thinking of eternity. We, we, we all do. But if you look at the context of James, James is talking about the here and now. And it would seem, and I, I would agree, as now that I've gone through this book a few times more, 
that when, when James is speaking of the crown of life, he means li- living royally now. Like the king. Like the Lord. Like we're in that crown now. And this crown would mean that you love despite the trials, right? Pressure is on me. Pressure is on me. There's so much, there's pain in my life. I don't have time for you. That's, uh, that's poor. <laughs> that's poor spiritual life. Like we all know this, right? But we say, come on, man, give us a break. That sounds like Joe, Joe Biden, or President, I should say, President Biden. Come on, man, give me a break. Yeah, God doesn't do that. This, this mirror will give you a break. <laughs> the mirror of the Word of God does cut us no slack at all. Right? By, we're forgiven. You're forgiven. But it doesn't say, well, you know, all right. All right. I know you're weak. We'll just we'll take it down a few pegs. Just love your friends. Yeah, and there's, there's amazingly, I didn't know this before, there's something like 15 or so perfect parallels between James' book and the Sermon on the Mount. When you put them side by side, you're like, oh my God, it's like James robbed from his brother his great sermon. <laughs> I, I have no problem with that because that's all I do is rob from others and then teach it as my own. Um, yeah, the forgiveness is God's patience. There's God's love. Never going to change. All of that. But when it comes to who we're supposed to be, God cuts us no slack here. So, faith alone without works is a faith that proclaims to be but doesn't do what it proclaims to be. When we look in the mirror of the Word of God, faith says what we are. You're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Isn't that the same argument that Paul used to the Corinthians? Why are you sleeping with prostitutes? You are the temple of God. He could have just wrote, stop it. But he said, no, you are the temple of God, and the temple of God does not unite itself with demons. Which is, you know, not the well, they could have been, I don't know, but <clears throat> James makes this case. He says, Look, you're the first fruits of God. How is it that you hate one another, or envious of one another, that you want to take from one another? <clears throat> that you you are not kind to one another. How is that? How does that matter? And it's the same argument Paul uses. And so, and James will use the word death here to describe it. And he does not mean like the second death, like the lake of fire. He doesn't mean that. So it's important to know the purpose of this letter and the main theme of it. And when we don't, we add something to it. And then here's what we what happens when we eisegete. Eisegete again means to put into the Word of God. We add something like, all right, we're going to interpret faith without works as dead, or can faith save him? We're going to interpret that in the way we want. And then we're going to take from the letter theology. And then we say, well, look, it's right here in James. But it's not there in James. 
you put it in James. And then you, you know, you added, you mixed it all up, and you like baked your theological cake. And you said this is true. It's not true. He's not talking about eternal salvation at all. He's talking about the crown of life. He's talking about a life that is blessed. He's talking about a life that is godly. He's talking about a life that is a manifestation of exactly who we are in Christ Jesus. So here's a great example of this. This is a painting that was hanging in uh, Mercy Church in Borja. It's in Spain. B-O-R-J-A. How would you pronounce that, honey? You're my Spanish translator. Borja, Borja, who cares? We'll say it's in Spain. Uh, It was 100 years old. It bore the title Eche Homo. Behold the man. Uh, Painted by some Spanish painter 100 years ago. And so, you know, it's obviously in some disrepair. It's aged. And so uh, an elderly woman in the church, apparently with the permission of the priest, decided to restore this painting. And there's what she got. (laughs) How is that not hilarious? That's what she did. It looks like she took her kid's paint set and set set to fix this painting. That's what she came up with, poor, poor woman. She probably meant really well. You know, it's probably one of those things where I think I can do this, and then you start, and you're like, ooh, maybe I should fix that. Oh, maybe I should fix that. And then uh, you're too far gone. you got to finish. Uh, this is, to me, the most perfect illustration of eisegesis. You say, you know, God's word, it's not as nice. It, it doesn't fit my preconceived notions. It doesn't look good enough to me. So you know what? I'm going to touch it up. And that's what you end up with, a monstrosity. And then you teach that monstrosity as theology. And many a life have been ruined by it, especially with the book of James. So the purpose of James is to strengthen believers to live out their faith despite many trials. That's the whole reason he writes the letter. It's important for us to know that. James is writing to believers. Uh, you you might note that I haven't said he's writing to Jews, which he is. But we're going to see that when James writes this letter, it's very likely that there are hardly any Gentiles in the church yet. And that these believers he's writing to who have been dispersed by the persecution. And guess who started the persecution? This awful man, Saul of Tarsus. And we find because of Saul of Tarsus, James has to write this letter. Isn't that great? And Saul of Tarsus would have been wanting to kill James, believe me. He would have been one of the number one guys he wanted to arrest and throw in prison and execute. And it may be that James wrote this letter before, before Paul was even saved. By some accounts, it could be that. We don't know for sure. 
But it's very early in the church. And that's if for this letter, it is one of the more important things to know. And that's why there's no real theology in it. Could be. But it's very likely that there's no theology in this letter. This letter is about, look, your believers shape up. Why should I shape up? Because you're believers. Okay. Yet, no, you're the first fruits of Christ. You've been given eternal life. Our, Our Lord encountered various trials. Did you see Him behaving like you? And when you read like chapter 3 and chapter 4, the way their speech, their actions, at least James must have heard about this. Um, it's, ter- it's just so terrible. What they're doing, at least a certain portion of them, is, is just terrible. So, strengthen believers to live out their faith despite many trials. And then the theme is, be what you are. And I love this theme because it's a theme I find in Paul's letters all the time too. Be what you are. right? We did Ephesians. Three chapters in Ephesians are all about what you are. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are really an expanded uh, uh, treatise on the gospel. Be what you And so that's what you are. And then chapter 4, he says, therefore. right? What I always tell you, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, is always pointing to what was written before. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And James is the same here. Be what you are and live out your faith. James's book is about the believer and how he listens, he or she listens, speaks, works, gives, prays, desires, and remain sanctified from the world. He touches on all of those things. How do you listen? How do you speak? James says if you can control the tongue, you can control your whole body. I read this and I'm like, is that true? I still don't. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take as James is inspired by God and so that's true. But in my mind, I'm like, really? You'd make up your own mind. Don't listen to me. (laughs) Listen to James. Uh, How you listen, how you speak, how you work, the work that you do, the deeds that you do, how you give to others, especially the poor, how you pray or when you pray, how you desire and how you remain sanctified from sin in the world. In other words, it is solely about how we as believers should live. The sub-theme to this is trials, difficult times. Because as we said, when trials come, everything's exacerbated. So the way I should speak to you is way more of a challenge if I'm in pain, is it not? The way I should serve you, give to you, how about my worldly desires? What happens to my worldly desires when I'm in pain? Don't they become more attractive? You know, get a distraction, something that will ease the pain. It depends on who you are. Well, that's where my flesh goes. <laughs> you know, ease the pain. What about when, you know, uh, you're staying sanctified from the world and then you're in pain and things are, are prosperous and easy? How you act 
is different. It's more challenged when you're under trial. Especially, and I, you know, going back to James saying how you speak, if I'm in pain, my speech can change. You know, how do you respond to that person who just kind of irritated you? Well, if I'm in a good mood, I'm like, okay, no problem. God bless. I'll pray for you. Whatever. You know, whatever I'm going to say. But if I'm in pain or if I'm under pressure, I'm in a bad, I'm cranky because of my pain. And then someone irks me a bit. Yeah. Get back to those, the Hulk. Anger. James makes a big case out of anger here. Because it is our, the human race is our natural response when we are under trial and, and other people annoy when we're under trial. We want to lash out. He says you can't. So, James 1.21. We'll close here. Why is faith without works dead? He says it here. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Here we are again. Salvation is by studying the Word of God. He can't mean save your souls in the way of heaven from hell. Because then it's not the gospel, it's study and doctrine. This is a it's a Hebrewism. Save your soul means save your lives. James is a Hebrew, and he's writing to Hebrews. And this suke. This this phrase is used by our Lord in the exact same way. Written the same way. Save your life. That's what it means. Not your soul from hell, but your life now. If you save your life, then you wear the crown of life. What Jesus said, is this where he uses it? Lose your life. For my sake, and you will find it. Is that salvation? It can't be. No, it's not. You will find your life. Here, what James calls that finding your life is the crown of life. You live day in, day out in the image of the king. There can't be anything better than that. And, it, look, and this mirror is not a desire, just your desires. Hopefully it is your desires. And that, like Rowling puts it, if what you see in that mirror, whatever it is, Erised, if you see in that mirror just yourself, then you're a fulfilled, happy person. If you looked into the mirror of God and you saw yourself just as you wanted to be, you know, of course, we're always going to want things to be, some things to be different. But if you saw in yourself, as you looked into this mirror, you saw mature, confident, happy, fulfilled, gracious, loving, forgiving, strong, courageous. The words go on and on. You would love what you see in this mirror. Because you'd be seeing yourself in the image of the Lord. 
That's saving your life. James is very clear here. If we have schools of doctrine running around in our head, or as someone put it, well, let's say James has in mind what James, sorry, who James has in mind is the Christian who believes much and does nothing. That's who he has in mind. Especially when you read chapter 4 in this book, you'll see that they believe much and they're not doing anything. You know, not doing anything virtuous. This person has a soul full of orthodoxy. Decades of doctrine is swimming around in there and hardly any, any of it is being lived out. There are no works of graciousness, kindness, service, encouraging words, forgiveness, or joy in the midst of painful trial. This type could be a very moral person too. And according to the world, they'd be a very church-going moral person. But they have not lived out any of this. There is another type also who has a head full of orthodoxy. Decades of doctrine swimming around like great schools of herring in their soul. But there is no sanctification from worldliness. Rather, they live in immorality, alcohol or drug abuse, sexual immorality, entertainment occupation, social media addiction, and perversity of any kind of material thing. It's perverted. And they have gobs of doctrine swimming around in their soul. But they have applied none of it, or hardly any of it. Am I condemning you for that? No, I wouldn't, because I have lived that. James is. And because he's inspired by God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is. Convicting us all. That what is in our hearts that is called our faith has to be lived. And if it's not, if we don't save our lives, what happens to our lives? You can't lose your salvation. James wouldn't believe that. Nobody in the Bible believes that. You can't lose it. But you lose the fruitfulness, the production, the service, the joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren. You lose that. You don't have any of that. And that's what James is after here. The first book written in the Bible is about this. And I don't think that's a mistake. God is like, so what is, God prioritizes. Before we get into Paul's theology, which he is going to develop greatly, before we get to Paul's theology, we want to make sure you're straight on the fact that whether you know theology or not, that you better live the way that you are designed to live. First and foremost, first book of the Bible. That's an excellent way to leave this. And I say it to myself, we all, we all have to say it to ourselves. All of us are going to be convicted in some way. But it must be true. Do not become this sophisticated theologian in the Pauline epistles and you don't do a thing. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this letter. <laughs> Thank you for all of these letters. It gives us stuff to do. We have a lot of work to do. We're going to roll up our sleeves, Father. We're going to get into this New Testament book by book. And we're going to see what your writings are, what you have inspired. And we're going to take them into our own selves and 
understand. Thank you for God the Holy Spirit that's going to make that understanding possible. Thank you for our Lord and Savior who has made everything possible. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I will take our offering and land so I, I didn't have a mirror at home that's how much I don't like mirrors and uh, well I mean we have them on the wall but I wasn't going to tear it off and bring it in um, but uh, we asked uh Chris had an awesome idea. She said, perhaps Gail has a mirror, and she, she she did. She had this one, and this is Mabel's mirror. Esther, Esther Mabel, not my Esther, Aunt Esther, right? Grandma Esther. Whatever, Chris, go to prep school or something. <laughs> uh, I went out, I went out on a plank and I sawed it off. Let's just pray for our offering. (laughs) Father, thank you for the opportunity to give. We give as your believer priests in love and worship and in honor of you. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. We ask your blessing upon this offering. In Christ's name, amen. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. The final moments of our service are dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. And if you have not, you're listening to my voice, please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one and only Savior of the world. He is the one who has taken away the sins of the world. He has been judged for them in our place. So your sins have been judged upon him. If you believe upon him, you will accept that gift But you have to believe. If you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, you reject Him and His work for you. So I beg you, please consider the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on Him as the one who died and was raised again on the third day, who died for your sins and mine, so that you will be saved. Thank you, Father, for your blessings. In Christ's name, amen.